Amen. Amen. Well, I uh, think it's pretty awesome that we get to come and worship the Lord. Isn't that cool that we get to do that together? And we're reminded what a great God that we have. You guys can find your seats. I'm going to invite you, if you will, uh, take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Exodus. We are in Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming around right now. You could just get their attention. Uh, we want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. and uh, Or you could follow along with us on the Bible app. We are uh, going to be in Exodus uh, chapter 2 today, and really that's what we're doing. We're just looking at how awesome our God is. This, this story in Exodus is, is just kind of this epic story of God delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt, and, and so we are three weeks into our study in the book of Exodus, and we finally get to a guy named Moses. Now, Moses is uh, like everybody knows Moses, he's kind of on the Mount Rushmore of the Bible, right? I mean, you think of some of the most uh, uh, classic uh, pictures in the Bible, the most iconic images of the Bible that you can think of, this, this guy with his arms stretched out and the waters of the Red Sea parted, um, or, or, or coming down with the, the, the Ten Commandments in his hand. I mean, this, Moses is larger than life. In fact, I know that he's not one of the, the, the patriarchs. He's not Abraham, uh, Isaac, or Jacob. Those are, the, those are the patriarchs that we read about in Genesis. But, but you remember, uh, Genesis and Exodus is actually part of what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's all really just one book. And I know Moses is not one of those patriarchs, but for most of the Pentateuch, most of the Pentateuch is really all about Israel under Moses' leadership. And so uh, here we are in Exodus chapter 2. God is actually preparing the deliverer for his people. But this is the, the, the back story, if you will. Before the, before the fame, before the, the plagues and the waterworks and the epic beard with the stone tablets and a mountain, before, before Moses becomes the man that everybody knows, uh, how, how did... How did this leader get his start in life? And so you can almost look at Exodus chapter 2, kind of like the, uh, the cover story in, in Time Magazine or, or Vanity Fair, uh, covering the, the life and, and the, the backstory of some rock star leader or politician. Like, how did they get to where they're at today? Where, where did they come from? And so as we dig into this, you're going to see that the backstory of Moses is shocking. It's miraculous, and it's not as glamorous as you would have hoped. Because the story about the Exodus is not about Moses at all, is it? It's about our great God. That's what we're uh, trying to see. It's about God working and even using someone who, quite honestly, is a failure. So everything that we're going to see today in Exodus chapter 2, this is all the, the prep work that God has to do in Moses before he could use him. I think this is encouraging for us because, listen, uh, like, like, like me, you are, are being sent out by God. Do you know that? And we've been making a major emphasis this year that, that we want to love Christ and, and live sent. And all of us, we, we want to get after uh, the mission that God has called us to. But I think it's important for us to remember how God has been and is continuing to prepare us for the faithful service that he's calling us to. God has to do a work in us, just like he had to do in Moses. But, but I want to I stop right here, um, because I think it's important when we come to texts like this, and, and, and we're in a narrative, uh, to really uh, wrestle with how are we supposed to 
uh, apply this story uh, to our lives. Because obviously the, the, the biggest point is that we would see uh, the glory of God and that we would know Him. And yet, um, we, we're looking at the life of Moses, and so should, should we learn from that? Are there lessons here? Is there moral of the story here? here I just want to make this clear, okay? You are not Moses, Okay? And what I mean by that is, uh, I know Moses is like a really great guy and he's, he's well known. But this is not really about you finding your inner significance and unlocking your full potential to become somebody great, okay? Like, I know Moses is going to become this great leader, but this is not tips uh, on how you can, uh, uh, you know, find success in your life and, and like what you see in the mirror. This is going to keep you from thinking that, that Moses is, is a hero and doing silly things to try to be like him, like you know, putting yourself up for adoption with the president so that you can grow up in a palace, or, or, or you know, embarrassing yourself this summer by trying to part the waters of your community pool. Like We're not doing that, right? I mean, we are not Moses, and the goal is not to emulate him. I know you're like, that's so dumb. Like We would never do that, and yet and sometimes we would approach the text in that way. You're not Moses, but there are ways in which you are like Moses, just like there are ways that you're like the children of Israel. And so there are lessons that we can learn here in this. And so, so let, me, let, me, let me clarify how we're approaching this, okay? There are really two ways that the story of Moses actually points to something else. One, uh, it parallels us. And two, it also parallels Jesus. One commentator said it like this, that, that Moses foreshadows both the Redeemer and the redeemed. Okay? We're going to see that in the life of Moses, that, 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 that he is like Jesus because he's the deliverer, but he's also like us because he himself needs to be delivered. And so we're going to learn from Moses because he's somebody just like us who actually needs to be saved. But our eyes are going to be drawn really to the beauty of Christ and, and to see Jesus is the one who saves us. He's the hero and he's our example to follow. And, and, and if we're going to live sent, I hope this becomes really clear, we're not going anywhere without him. And so if we're going to uh, get into Exodus chapter 2. Let me give you a big idea of the text as we dive into it this morning. If you're taking notes, note this. It's only when we recognize our dependence on God that we're prepared to live sent for Him. I, I, I'm praying. I, I know we're sending you out. We, we want that emphasis. We want to live on mission, but Man, if we could get anything this morning, it's that we just need to grow in, in this knowledge and, and, and awareness. Like, we need him. We desperately need the Lord. And so I'm going to give you um, two ways, I think, that we're going to see in Moses' life. Two ways um, that God prepares us to live sent, just like he's preparing Moses, okay? Uh, and, and, and here's the first one. I think this should probably be pretty obvious. If you're taking notes, note this. Here, here's the first way he does it. He saves us. He saves us, just like he's going to save Moses. Can I show that to you? Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You follow along with me as I read. Remember, Moses is actually writing this. Here's what he says, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. 
The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river, river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. It's kind of a miraculous salvation story right here. And, and, and like any good story, Moses is going to start right from the beginning when he was born. He tells us in verse 1 uh, that, that he was born to his parents. But notice in, in verse 1, we actually don't get the names of his parents. That comes later. We actually find out their names in chapter 6. But, but right here, he, he's focusing on the lineage. It's important that you recognize that Moses comes from the line of Levi, and as we're going to learn later in the Pentateuch, uh, Levi is the house of the priests, the ones that are supposed to lead Israel in worship. And so right away, uh, he's letting us know that, that this is the one who God is going to use to lead his people out into the wilderness to worship God. Okay, And, and so Moses is born, and then verse 2 t- says that, that, that his mom hid him for three months. So the context, remember, we, we remember last week we saw at the end of chapter 1, Pharaoh like hates these people and, and, and wants to get rid of them and, and he's afraid of them. And so he told all the Egyptians uh, that, that uh, if there were any baby boys born to the Hebrews that they were supposed to throw them into the Nile River. This is, this is murder, this is genocide, and, and this is horrible. And, and you think about what that would have done for all these women that, that are uh, finding out that they're pregnant. I mean, that's supposed to be a really exciting time, right? When somebody finds out that they're having a baby, they go into nesting mode, and they, you know, they start uh, getting all this stuff ready and, and getting the nursery and, and buying furniture and, and getting all the baby clothes and stocking up on, on diapers and eating pickles and ice cream and all this. It's like a wonderful time. But instead of that, think about this. For, for nine months, if you found out that you were pregnant, you're, you're living with this, this awful fear because there's, there's no ultrasounds, and so you're just left wondering, like, what if, what if it's a boy? And if it's a boy, the government has the authority to come in and just rip him out of your hands and go off and kill him. And this, this, is, this is horrible what's happening here, and quite honestly, the odds of, of Moses' survival are really low. But, but, but it's really a story about how God is, is at work here. And it says he's using his faith, Hebrews tells us. Uh, he's using the faith of Moses' his parents to protect him and, and keep him safe until, uh, until he's uh, not even safe at, at home anymore because, you know, eventually the baby's going to grow up. There, there does come a point in time where all parents realize that you can't just keep the kid in the car seat all the time. 
Like, like there, there does come that point where it's, I, like, honestly, I remember this point, and, 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 and I see first-time parents, they, they, they're, like, coaxing their kid to crawl, like, like, we want them to get to move. By the time you're having your fourth kid, you're, like, rue the day that they can move on their own. Like, can we just go back to the time where you just set them down there in the car seat? But eventually they grow up. A, a, a baby can only be kept secret for so long. He's going to be discovered. Like, what are we going to do here? What are we going to do? And, and so look at verse 3. Here's what she does. Verse 3, she puts him in a basket. That word is really interesting because that word in the Hebrew is actually only used in one other place in the whole Bible. The only other place that that word basket is used in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. In Genesis chapter 6 through 9, that word basket is actually translated as the ark that Noah built. So there's, like, there's no way you miss that as you're reading through the Pentateuch. You're like, well, I've seen this before. Just like God saved Noah from the waters of destruction, now he's saving Moses by, by, by having his mom put him in this little ark and, and floating him on the Nile River. Now, now, for you mothers that are thinking, like, that still doesn't sound safe. I think you're right, Okay. Like, I have no idea what that would have actually been like and how dangerous that was, but it's pretty obvious that, that God is even in that. He is, he, he is directing little baby Moses through the water just like he's going to save his people and lead them right through the waters of the Red Sea. I mean, what, what, what are the odds that a, a, a baby is going to survive in a basket on the Nile River? What are the odds? Well, how about the odds of that Hebrew baby boy finding his way into the arms of Pharaoh's daughter? Did you just like see the irony in what's happening here? I love that like, God like, makes this happen. It's almost like he's just like sticking it to Pharaoh's evil plans here, right? He, he, you, you see God directing Moses to her because he knows how she's going to react. Imagine you, you, you find a three-month-old, beautiful little baby boy in a basket. In fact, uh, we're, we're, we're gonna, I want you to help me, okay? Can, can you help me out here? We're going to reenact her uh, reaction to this, okay? So I just want you to imagine, just imagine that you are Pharaoh's daughter, and, and you come across this, this basket, this, and so you open up this basket with this beautiful little three-month-old baby boy, and you all say... Aww, like, like the, the ladies all get this. And the reason the ladies all know this is because God has already given them th this nurturing instinct. Do you think it's any coincidence that the first person who finds baby Moses is not a soldier, it's, it's not Pharaoh, but it's Pharaoh's daughter? God uses her compassion and her pity to save him and it just so happens that Moses' sister is watching she pipes up like hey you want me to go get a Hebrew nurse and so she goes and she gets her mom and, and Pharaoh's daughter uh, puts her in charge so now uh, Moses' mom is, is actually getting paid to take care of her own kid how about that gig moms isn't God awesome verse 10 he actually grows up and and she, he has to go back, which I, I know is sad, but, but instead of living life as a slave, he's actually growing up in a palace. And she names him Moses 
because she says, I drew him out of the water. The, the, the Hebrew name, Moshe, for Moses, Moshe, sounds like the Hebrew word masha, meaning to draw out. So Moses' name is this constant reminder that he needed to be saved. That the only way he's even around, the reason he's here, is because God drew him out of the water just like he is going to draw out his people from slavery in Egypt. See, do you see how great our God is? God saves. That's what he does. Man, that's really good news for those of us who are in slavery too. And I know we're, we're not, maybe not in physical slavery, but we're in worse slavery. We are in slavery to sin and death. That's really the problem that the Bible is trying to address here. That's the biggest issue that we are, we are enslaved to sin. I mean, what is wrong with the world and what is wrong with us and why do we have so much brokenness and why does it look like this? The reason is sin. Moses has been telling us that the Pentateuch, and all the way back in Genesis, he made it clear right from the beginning. The reason that we see all this brokenness is because in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve joined in this rebellion against God, and they fell into sin against him and fell under the curse of God because of sin. And that's why. And then Genesis, you flip the page to Genesis chapter 4. Now we're living in the curse of sin. Genesis chapter 4 shows you the horrors of sin. And you start seeing Cain murder his own brother. You're like, man, this is messed up. Then you flip another page to Genesis chapter 5, and you could consider Genesis chapter 5 the, the, the graveyard of Genesis. It's one of those genealogies that we normally skip over because it's just a bunch of names. But what, one of the things that emphasize there in Genesis chapter 5 is that everybody's dying. So that Abraham, or, or, or Adam had some kids, and, and, and then he died. And his kids had some kids, and they died. And they had some kids, and they Everybody's dying. This is awful. That's the answer. This is the problem that, that the Bible's trying to address, that, that all of us fall short of the glory of God, and we are enslaved to sin and death. And what can you do to fix that problem? Answer? Absolutely nothing. See, only God can draw us out of that. God has to save us. You see, the only reason that we are saved is because of the Redeemer, who is also uh, a survivor of another murderous king, just like Pharaoh, right? King Herod tried to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem to wipe out the Messiah, but God rescued his own son from that evil plot so that he could become uh, the Redeemer and, and uh, he would die on the cross to pay for our sins and the Father would even crush his son. He would come under the wrath of God so that he could pay for our sins so that we could be drawn out and set free from sin and he even conquered death. You see, Moses is pointing us to somebody else. The act of God here is reminding us that Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the one who can deliver us. So, so the point of this, we're not, we're, we're not supposed to be looking back at the backstory of Moses and just be like, man, Moses is awesome. He, he literally did nothing. Okay? Well, he cried. He didn't have anything to do with this. And if you didn't know who was behind it all, you would just say, well, that kid just kind of got lucky. 
But the point of this text is that you would see the power and the glory of a God who saves. He saves us. That's how we're prepared to go and live sent. Don't forget your testimony. Don't forget what God has done. You were in a river of death with nothing you could do about it. You were completely and utterly dependent on him to pull you out. You just have to put your faith and trust in Jesus alone. He's the one who saves. And so as he's sending you out, uh, the reason that he's sending you out is not to make much of your name, right? Like we didn't send a, a, a missions team all the way to Kuala Lumpur so that they would talk about how great Harvest Fairfax is. And, and we're not wanting you to go and reach your neighbors so that they'll just be impressed with you. We want you to go and, and help other people know Jesus and, and find salvation in his name. We want to let the, let the gospel motivate us to live sent. And, and, and I love that God is, is preparing us to serve him by continually drawing us back to what he did for us in salvation. We just need to be reminded of that. He saves us. But that actually leads us to the second way that God prepares us to live sent. Note this. He humbles us. He humbles us. Now, now we get to uh, the actions of Moses, okay? Starting in verse 11, follow along with me. We keep reading. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had, Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. I want to show you that this is Really a story about Moses as a failure. This is his humiliation. Verse 11 says he, he grew up in um, Acts chapter 7. In the book of Acts, um, Stephen is actually uh, giving a, kind of a sermon, and he's telling the story of, of, of what happened here. And Stephen tells us that at this point, Moses was 40 years old. Okay, so he's not like 16, and he's just like checking it out, like, He's grown up here, and he goes out to look on his people. At this point, he knows his heritage. He knows where he came from, and, and, and he goes out to look on their burdens, which is interesting. He's, just, he's actually identifying now with the Hebrews. And you also see that Moses has this strong sense of, of justice. 
which is pretty honorable. You can see how uh, God is going to use that in days to come. But um, he also has a little bit of an anger problem. And so when he goes out and, and, and he sees one of these Egyptians uh, beating a Hebrew, that word reminds us of, uh, of chapter 1 where we saw how the, the children of Israel were being treated and, 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 and it was so awful. They were, they were, they were being uh, mistreated with cruel and oppressive uh, violence against them. And he's seeing this happening in front of him. He's like, this, is, this has got to stop. And so verse, verse 12, he, he, he looked this way and that. Seeing nobody, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now, now here's the thing. There's kind of two things going on here, okay? In one sense, what, what Moses is doing here is foreshadowing the Redeemer, the one who's going to come and actually uh, deliver his people and strike down Israel's oppressors. This is what we're going to see God do later in the book, especially when we get to the ten plagues. The tenth plague, God actually says, I will strike all the firstborn. Same word. And so what Moses is doing here is a picture of what's to come when God executes justice. But was it right for Moses to do this? Now clearly, um, Moses knows his actions are wrong. I mean, who, who like looks around to make sure that nobody's looking and, and then covers it up when you're doing something good? Like, I'm going to do the dishes tonight, and I'm going to, uh, you know, do, the, do some extra laundry, some extra cleaning, but first, got to make sure that nobody's looking. Don't want anybody cover my tracks. Don't want anybody to know it was me. You don't, you don't do that, okay? Moses knows this is sin. It's murder. And he's actually taking it upon himself to execute justice. And honestly, he thinks his, his time has arrived. He's, you know, he, he goes out. He's like, I'm, you know, I'm going to be the leader here. He, he sees these two Hebrews fighting. He says, why, 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 do you, why do you strike your companion? Same word, interestingly. Uh, it's the same word as what he did to the Egyptian. Why, 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 are, you, why are you fighting, bro? Like, like what, what's this all about? And he tries to, to step in like, like he's going to settle things. He's like, I'm here. I'm the leader. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix these things. And the guy looks back at him. He says, who made you prince and judge over us? Like, like who gave you the authority? You're no better than us. That, I didn't kill him. I might have punched him in the face. But. And at this point, you see like Moses is kind of freaking out a little bit. You see that? So really, this, this whole story just shows us that Moses is messed up. I, I think it's important for us, uh, significant knowing that all that God is going to do through him in years to come, that the first time we see Moses do anything, he fails. He's not the hero. I think about, he has all of this potential. He's got this miraculous birth story like he's the chosen one or something and he grows up in, the, in a palace. He has the best education. He's got this position of prominence. I mean, think how he could leverage that. He's got so much potential going for him and he's got passion. He's socially active. He's a great millennial. He, like he wants to right wrongs and, and stand against injustice and, and, and even Hebrews 11 tells us that he chose by faith to be mistreated with uh, the people of Israel rather than just 
live it up in sin and luxury and pleasure. That's great. Like he's got this passion to do right. He's got all this potential. He's got all this passion, but it's all wasted because he believes his own press. He, he kind of thinks he's the man. And in his self-reliance, he takes it upon himself to set things right without waiting for the Lord. Kind of walks out there like he doesn't need God. Because at this point, he doesn't understand yet how dependent he is on the Lord's power and the Lord's presence with him. And so instead of kind of enjoying his big moment where he kind of gets to, you know, step up into being Israel's leader, he just falls flat on his face in humiliation and embarrassment. And Israel rejects him. He pops up on the wanted posters in Egypt and he has to run away and hide. I I was thinking, like, as I was thinking about Moses' story, I couldn't help uh, but remember the first sermon that I ever got to preach. And I've told you before that when I was a kid, I really, you know, I dreamed of being a pastor. Honestly, I had dreamed of this moment that I was going to get to preach in front of my home church. I, like, envisioned the whole thing, including, you know, like, light from heaven and angelic voices in the back. I mean, I was going to wow everybody in this moment. So, so here I am having this internship um, at, at my home church in college, and, and I had spent the whole summer uh, preparing for this message, and, and, and it was going to be, uh, it was going to be awesome. It was my moment to shine, and here it was. Everybody was going to know, and it was horrible. Like, I'm not even kidding. It was, it was straight up terrible. I was trying to be somebody that I was not, and um, like, I, I, I sort of kind of wish that I had the recording so that I could go back and uh, relive the embarrassment. I like, I, I'm pretty sure that it made absolutely no sense. Um, the whole thing was actually just a really humiliating experience for me. Because honestly, even, even I, was, I was trying to do something good, right? But I wasn't doing it to make much of Jesus. I, 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 was, I, I was really doing this in my own power, just ready to be a hero. Acting like I didn't need God. That was a powerful lesson for me early on. And I wish I could tell you that I learned that lesson and have never had to repeat it again. Um, but even still, there's a lot of times like uh, maybe it's my family or in, in ministry, I just kind of walk out with this attitude um, like I don't really need God. I, I would never say that, but I, like in, in my heart, I just kind of feel like I got this. Like I can do I've done this before. I can, I, 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 can, I can handle this on my own. No prayer, no dependence, and only after realize I was, it's pretty stupid. Like, I really do need the Lord. See, when we, we fail, when we don't think that we need God and we step out ahead of him. Now, you're, you're being sent out, right? We're asking you, know, you God wants to li- let you live on mission to make disciples for his glory and And you don't have to go on a missions trip to to live sent, right? That's one of the things we've been trying to encourage you with is that we want you to love Christ. We want you to live sent. You can do that right here, right now, right where God has you. And God has placed you strategically right where he has you so that you can share the gospel and leverage your life to help others uh, in your sphere of influence and just help them follow Jesus. But think about your sphere of influence. I know a lot of you go to work maybe thinking about that, but... If you're walking into work every day without spending any time in prayer, how are you going to depend on him to do what only he can do through you? 
Or maybe it's your family, like your kids. If your only prayer for your kids is that they're healthy and that they don't end up on drugs and living in your basement until they're 35, like, if that's it, like, how are you depending on the Lord to really help you live out the gospel in front of them and teach them to know and fear the Lord? And if they never see you, uh, you know, open up your Bible or, or hear you pray except to, you know, bless the food or sleep tight at night or they never see you step out in faith to share the gospel. Like how, how are they ever going to see an example of someone who knows they are absolutely dependent on the Lord? And even if you get a measure of what the world would call success, like things kind of go well for you, eventually you're going to realize the, the, the emptiness and the foolishness of not trusting him and living your life completely for him and for his glory. Moses doesn't get it yet. But he's going to learn, and he's going to have to learn the hard way. What we actually see here, this is interesting, God, God's chosen deliverer is identifying with the suffering of his people and is even rejected by his own people. He runs away, and he even names his son uh, Gershom there, verse 22, which sounds like the word sojourn. Just this, this perpetual reminder that he had to live as an outcast because he was rejected. You see, Moses, even in this, is pointing to the greater Moses in Jesus, who, Isaiah says, was despised and rejected by men. John tells us that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He's the one who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. See, Moses was humbled because of his sin. But Jesus humbled himself and submitted himself to suffering and rejection so that he could become sin for us and suffer in our place. But it's in this place of humiliation after Moses' failure that God is really going to prepare him to lead his people. But he has to learn it out in the wilderness. Verse 15 tells us that he's actually, he had to run to the land of Midian. I want to show this to you on a map real quick just so we get a little bit of an idea of where we're at, okay? Uh, this is the region of Midian, even across the part of the Red Sea right here. So Moses flees from Egypt all the way down to this region. We don't know exactly where that is, and yet we do know that this is the same region where later God is uh, going to meet with his people on Mount Sinai. Here's where he's going to learn his lesson. And it's here, verse 16 tells us that he sees this, this other situation of injustice, right? You got seven girls taking care of sheep at a well, and then a bunch of mean old shepherds show up and driving them off. And, you know, Moses, he's got this sense of uh, justice. He wants to do something, and, but, but, but instead of actually uh, killing somebody this time, thankfully, he instead stood up and saved them. That, that word in the Hebrew means he delivered them. He rescued them. Everywhere else that word is used in the Pentateuch, it's actually used of God's act of salvation. 
And so, so Moses is rescuing these daughters just like God is going to rescue his people out of Egypt. And, and then, uh, look, he, he actually waters their flocks. He waters their flocks just like God is going to use him later to bring water out of a rock for the nation of Israel when they're in the wilderness. He's learning. He's learning. But now for a little while, he's going to, um, for a long time, He's going to live with his wife and his father-in-law here. I, I love that he's even watering the flocks. Notice he's becoming a servant. And he's also becoming a shepherd. In fact, by the, the beginning of chapter 3, Moses is the one who's taking care of the sheep. It's kind of a far cry from the prince of Egypt, isn't it? And see, God had to humble Moses to prepare him to become a shepherd for his people. And he did do that. I want, I want to show this to you. Psalm chapter 77. Psalm chapter 77, at the very end of the psalm, the psalmist says this. He says to the Lord, he said, You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. But see, God had to bring him out to the wilderness just to teach him how to lead his people and to be a shepherd. Just like God has to humble us sometimes so that we can leave sin. We don't like being humbled. That's not fun. And I know what it feels like to be in a place where you, you, you almost feel like you're on the backside of a mountain in the middle of nowhere. Like, what? Why am I in this place? Like, why am I still at this job? What am I doing here? Or, or why am I going through this? I don't like this. I, I want to be in a better place. I don't, I don't want to have to go through this right now. And, and Humility can be a hard lesson, but I want to tell you, it's a sweet place to be. Because James chapter 4 tells us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, it's actually the grace of God that he would lead us to a place where we can, in humility, see how much we really need him. Moses had to learn humility and dependence in the wilderness before he could stand before Pharaoh and, and, and part the waters and, and lead God's people. One commentator said it like this. It was, it was not until the self-confident young Egyptian finally knew himself to be an old Midianite shepherd past the days of further human accomplishment that he was finally usable for God. I love this, that God is, I, I just have this confidence that he is going to use you. And we want you to live sent, live on mission. But it's not for you. It's not for your glory. And so that we would make much of Christ. Moses becomes a shepherd, but he's really just an under-shepherd. Because his life points to the good shepherd. The one who lays down his life for the sheep. And it's only when we realize how much we need him that we're prepared to live sin. Father, I pray that you would teach us that. Thank you. There are times where you take us through testing wilderness. Some people might feel like they're in the middle of it right now. Oftentimes it's in our failures that you teach us your mercy and your grace to us. So Lord, I thank you. We just thank you that you would even allow us to go through some of those things. It doesn't, we, we don't feel like praising you in the midst of it. 
But sometimes it's out in the middle of nowhere. We're really struggling where, where we fall on our knees and we look up and we experience your mercy, your grace, your provision, your satisfaction. And so, Lord, again, I pray that you would teach us that you alone satisfy. And I ask that we would long for you. And in humility, we would live in dependence on you. We don't want to take one step this week in our own power, in our own strength. It's not about us. It's about you and your glory. And we desperately need you and we want you. So I pray that as we live sent this week, that you will get the glory in our lives. We'll lift high the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray.